A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey guys, this is Aswin Subsang, but please call me Swin, and welcome to the Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. Hi, I'm Will Summer, a politics reporter at the Daily Beast, where I dig into all the darkest recesses of American extremism and extremely online militants. I'm currently working on a book about QAnon and its disastrous impact on our society. I'm also a senior political reporter at the Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. I've spent years covering the intersection of entertainment and politics, and in the post-Trump era, that seems like the only sensible way to cover politics in this beautiful, hideously stupid country of ours. On this podcast, we're going to take you on deeply reported plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, the grifters, and the influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. We're here to help you better understand how and why this is happening. And who in the halls of power are letting it happen? Along the way, we'll regularly bring on guests, including political pros, hard-nosed reporters, and some influential voices from Hollywood. Okay, Will, there's been this series of bank robberies or high-profile bank robberies in Eastern Europe recently. Do I have that right? Yeah, I mean, so there's an American connection here. So this is kind of like Fever Dreams. Maybe we're getting into a little true crime pod. And this is, you know, I mean, this is like the the story. There's going to be like, you know, there's going to be a Netflix show about this. I'm sure there's going to be all kinds of, you know, there's going to be true crime podcasts, all kind of stuff. But so get it here first, folks. So um, basically, these guys in Brooklyn realize that you can't really rob banks in America anymore uh, successfully. And so they decide to go to Eastern Europe to like Ukraine and Hungary, Azerbaijan, and just start knocking over banks there. And it turns out to be a pretty good racket. I think they make off with $30 million. So then earlier this week, the feds in the U.S. bust them. These countries in Eastern Europe can't figure it out. They bust them, but they bust them for like money laundering. It's for like buying plane tickets with their credit cards to go like do commit crimes. And basically like my take is, and, and I'm curious to, to on your take here, this is kind of an Al Capone committing tax fraud thing because like, I don't think you can catch them on the side crime, right? I think you got to catch them on the main one because I think they had a pretty good racket and they, they were not really outsmarted on that one. So is your coming conclusion that we need to invite these guys on the show? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would love to get them on the show. I mean, the side problem here for them, I think, is robbing from, like, Eastern Europeans. I think they may have some other issues aside from the U.S. Uh, judicial system ahead of them. But yeah, that's my dream fever dreams guest. So they decided to do this because they thought robbing banks in the U.S. was too hard? It's bank robbing arbitrage. It's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, basically, you know, what you make away, you get away with, like, 1200 bucks or something, you know, it's not worth it. But, you know, you go over there, and, and they had this, They it, it was very, like, high tech operation. So I'm glad to see the, uh, you know, the criminal ingenuity is, is still out there. Right. It's like robbing the quickie mart in the United States is too hard. So I'm going to go to Azerbaijan to do it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a decent lift, but uh, yeah, you know, it, it's kind of a Fast and the Furious vibe, right? Kind of like international heists. Oh, uh, that's exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah, it's Dom and the boys. <laughs> All right. So uh, moving on to something that is actually a quintessentially American story, as I'm sure our listeners already know. Uh, the Trumpian project of assailing the legitimate results of the 2020 presidential election is not at all losing steam, especially at the local and state level. In fact, you could argue it is picking up steam underneath the radar of much of the national press. Where this is most true is perhaps the state of Arizona. And Will, you've been doing some reporting recently on batshit stuff they've been doing that also has to do with like UV rays and UV light, like really like uh, not even well-written Cohen Brothers shit. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, like, you, you know it's a transparent vote recount when people are saying, like, is that a laser? Uh, so, yeah, so, I mean, basically what's happening in Arizona is, and, and you know, Fever Dreams listeners may know, I, I've long been fascinated by the post-election mess in Arizona, which has drawn in all kinds of hucksters and uh, characters. And so now what's going on is the Arizona State Senate, which is controlled by Republicans, has organized a sort of rinky-dink 
dink ballot recount of the ballots in Maricopa County, uh, which are you know mostly uh, Democratic leaning, and they it, it, it's sort of unclear why they decide the Democrat reason, reason, regions are the ones that need to be recounted. Tis a puzzlement. Yeah, right. <laughs> so so they they're just trying to they're like this has already been recounted before, and there's been no evidence of fraud, but. You know, you can kind of look at this at the Arizona State Senate's. Um, you can have a charitable and a less charitable view of, of why they're doing this. The charitable view is that they're scared they're going to get primaried if they don't investigate this. I think the less charitable and I, I think more accurate view is that they know that they're, they're basically looking for a fig leaf uh, for Republicans nationally to do any kind of um, in more voter restrictions. So, so they're just like they're like we have to find something. Right. Right. So two possible or perhaps parallel explanations for why they're doing this, and neither of which is like morally passable at this point. And it's one of these things where, and you and I have talked about this before, it's not just crazies spilling into different states to wage like a pro-Trump jihad or messaging battle or anything like that. The reason these things matter is because they actually are given at least a patina of alleged legitimacy by local politicians or national politicians who have gone who have invested so much time and energy into this that it may as well be Republican orthodoxy at this point that the election was stolen and something needs to be done about it, not just to protect Donald Trump's fragile ego, but to perpetuate whatever kind of laws we want spilled across the country. Yeah, and so Arizona's kind of taken one for the team here. They're stepping up and are like, okay, we'll, we'll basically find the, the whatever sort of proof at, you know, as it is that we can find that we can cite then for eternity. So right now this recount is starting and this I can't stress enough how weird this process is. The firm they hired to do this audit is basically no one's ever heard of them. They're called Cyber Ninja, which is just a name that, to my mind, really speaks of respectability and, and uh, <laughs> you know, upstanding nature. And, and definitely not a company you just can't, like, your 13-year-old name. They hired the company uh, from the movie Swordfish with John Travolta. Yeah, too. right, exactly. Yeah, we've got John Travolta, we got Halle Berry. And so, <laughs> so I mean, like, I'm looking at this political headline about this group now. And it's, never heard of them. Arizona audit firm unknown even in home state. And so, I mean, this is like this fly-by-night operation. The Arizona State Senate hired them. And then it turns out the guy who runs Cyber Ninja is like, has tweeted all this pro-QAnon stuff. Shocking. Uh, and, and, but, but like, I can't stress enough, even then, how weird the situation is. Because, so they have this recount. No reporters are allowed inside uh, to observe. In fact, the only way to get inside as a reporter is to sign up as a, like a, a member of the process as an observer. <laughs> uh, this one reporter did that, and she was like, they figured out she was a reporter, and she was like, forbidden from reporting. But at the same time, it's all being live streamed from like eight different camera angles but no one like there's never been an explanation of what is going on <laughs> and so like because there's a lot of like weird science behind this and so like you know people like Republicans think uh, this is kind of a QAnon theory that the ballots were watermarked in a, an attempt to catch Democrats making fake ballots, or they believe that if a ballot is folded the wrong way, that means it's fake. And so there's like a lot of just like weird stuff going on. And but the thing is, no one watching this, even the the people, the Republicans who've been very into this, no one knows what this process is. And so you have to kind of like suss it out from watching this video. And so, for example, everyone is wearing colored shirts, and so some people have purple shirts, some people have yellow shirts, and the game. Gateway Pundit was like, here's a guide to the shirts. <laughs> the answer was, but the shirts, it was just like red shirts. These are the people who bring in the ballots. And then every other shirt was, we don't know. <laughs> Green shirt beats us, you know? And then there's been this, it's just like, like it, it, one thing I want to stress is that like, this is a, this is like the OJ trial for like hardcore right-wing people. Like they are watching this video so intently. And there was like, uh, it, it, and so they, they've been watching it to the extent that they're becoming obsessed with like individual counters. So Ron Watkins, who I think has been credibly accused of being behind QAnon, uh, he's been kind of back on the scene now for the, the recount. And he's been posting, like, um, you know, with his buddies, he's been kind of amplifying these claims that, like, certain people, uh, certain recounters aren't taking the, the UV laser seriously enough um, and that maybe they're deep state operatives. It's a real mess. Can you tell us a little bit more about the UV light thing? Because th th that's something that you've been tweeting about recently that has fascinated me. <laughs> Right. And so, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, right. Okay. So UV lights, classic from Room Raiders on MTV, right? And so now they're part of our democratic process. And so basically the, but no one, no one knows what the UV light is for. And so basically there's this like big, we think it's a UV light and they, they put the ballots under it. 
and then they take it out. And there's been, it's like, is it looking for fingerprints? Supposedly, no. Um, you know, it's like, I don't know if they're like, it, Why would they this has George Soros' fingerprints on it. Like, are they looking for Nancy Pelosi's <laughs> fingerprints on it? Like, what, what the fuck well, is going Because here's the idea. The idea is that they just print, they, they think the Democrats just like went to a printer and printed off like a billion Biden ballots. And so what they think that there's like no fingerprints on these ballots, or they think that, that there's no folds, right? And so the UV is maybe supposed to catch the folds, or it's supposed to catch this mythical watermark. But, you know, again, Cyber Ninja has never come out and said, this is what the UV light is for. And so, I mean, it's just this like very hazy, this hazy process. And, um, you know, I I think whatever comes out of it, I mean, it's just going to just be cited by Republicans. Um, You know, we're going to be hearing about this on our deathbed, I think. And part of it is undergirded by this harebrained speculation or alleged speculation that, I don't know, some Democrats in Arizona went to Kinko's to print out a bunch of fake like a million fake ballots voting for Biden just to humiliate Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole idea is that the, these are like, you can tell through like, it's a very like holistic process, right? It's more an art than a science. And right. you can kind like, of like evaluate, like I, uh, you know, what it is. I'm not sure I can think of a currently ongoing, more pornographic metaphor for the American rights crusade against imaginary mass voter fraud conspiracies. Because what people have been saying for years upon years, long before Trump and Trumpism came along, is that what the mainstream GOP and American right has been doing on this issue is trying to find a solution that is very much in search of a problem. Just the problem as they define it simply does not exist. And here you have a bunch of people using UV light, uh, grasping in the uh, in the figurative dark, trying to figure out what the problem is. They just they don't have an actual problem except for Donald I mean, Trump well, isn't in the White there's House. There's no like there, there's no like theory of the case. It's just like hmm, it looks hinky to me, and so we're gonna figure it out. And the other thing I want to say is that like it wouldn't be a like kind of a, a big event, right? If they didn't think Antifa was coming, uh, of course. And so of course you you can't give an inch to the Antifa thugs. And so there's been this, like, rumor going on that, like, that Antifa is going to come. Look, I don't think Maricopa County is known for its Antifa mobs. And so you have to kind of, like, imagine Antifa. And so there was this rumor that, like, Antifa was going to come from Portland and and attack the ballot count. And you know what? I mean, you see this. And, and so, of course, they have, like, you know, these kind of, like, a bunch of people are like, I'm providing security for the ballot counters. Um, and more recently, we've seen this even make its way to the former president himself, Donald Trump, who put out a statement to demanding that the governor of Arizona provide more security to the ballot counters. And so, you know, he doesn't say, because I heard Antifa's coming, but that's clearly what it is. I mean, they think that, like, like the the, the, the crews are just, like, just going to come in and, like, I don't know, throw milkshakes or something. Right. And another reason why we are going to be hearing about this topic for maybe the rest of our lives is in large part because the effective leader of the Republican Party, uh, former President Donald Trump, will not shut up about it and actually still is actively invested in this batshit Arizona audit, whatever you want to call it. Rudy Giuliani has been going out there saying that he still talks to uh, Trump about it and that Trump has been briefed or quote unquote briefed on the latest ongoings on the matter. He, Donald Trump, of course, has put out multiple statements on this and he has continued his campaign of hate against the Republican and quite Trumpy governor of Arizona, Doug Ducey, criticizing him for not sending in armed guards to protect these auditors because they're under threat from the globalist Antifa threat or whatever horseshit. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, this is like basically someone has to find something that they can talk about, you know, going into 2024. And I think this is going to be it. Right. And the hilarious thing about the amount of two minutes hate that Donald Trump and his minions are still directing at Governor Ducey in Arizona is that, as I mentioned earlier, if you look at his public profile, if you Google him for about 15 and a half seconds, you can find out exactly how Trumpy a Republican he is. He was a staunch Trump supporter. This isn't like a squish like Larry Hogan in Maryland or something like that. But of course, because he was not willing to cross the Rubicon of being rhetorically or substantively supportive enough of Donald Trump's uh, effort to subvert democracy in America, he is now persona non grata. He is, along with Brian Kemp, I would argue that he is at the top of uh, Donald Trump's enemies list when it comes to, okay, Republicans who we now have to screw over prominent Republicans we have to screw over who are not with me 
to try to keep me in power and in the White House when I wanted them to be there uh, the most. Uh, we had some reporting uh, from earlier this week about how in private, when Trump has been bitching about Ducey, he has said that if he decided to run in 2022 for the U.S. Senate and he somehow became the Republican nominee, Paul Trump has privately vented at Mar-a-Lago that he would travel to Arizona to campaign against him and campaign for Democratic Senator Mark Kelly, if purely out of spite. I would love to see because, that. Right. And, oh, geez. Uh, thanks, Donald. Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, people who have heard uh, Trump say this in recent weeks do not think he's being entirely serious because, look, they're not actually going to go there and campaign for a Democrat and trying to keep the U.S. Senate more blue. That's probably not going to happen. But just the fact that Trump was willing to uh, uh, grouse about that and throw that out as a hypothetical in anger further underscores just how much he wants this guy's political future and political career ruined and have him and other people who are not nearly subservient enough to him run out of the party as long as he's around. Yeah, totally. I mean, look, that's why he, you know, he demanded that Ducey, you know, bring out the the battalions of state troopers to defend the ballots and defend the UV light at all costs. <laughs> all right, Swin, you know, I'm a big social media head. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Parler. I'm on Gab. I'm on MeWe, one of the QAnon social networks. But what I want to know, and, you know, I'm trying to get on Mike Lindell's frank speech. Uh, but what I want to know is where's the long promised Donald Trump social network? Okay. So back in March, uh, Jason Miller, who is still a senior advisor to Donald Trump, uh, went out there and said that in part because Trump is still banned from uh, Twitter, which was long his preferred social media platform, Trump is going to go out there and launch his own social media network, like uh, the Trump-made, Trump-branded version of Twitter or Facebook or both. And it's Jason Miller was going on TV arguing that this would totally change the game and that it would be coming in two to three months and that there were already conversations or motions to uh, actually make it under development. Now, to be fair, it has been one month, uh, a little over one month, since that was first uttered on the airwaves. But as far as I can tell, and I actually took some time, wasted a chunk of my Monday, uh, making calls and making inquiries to try to figure out what is the actual status and who is working on this and what is going on with the promised Trump social media network. And lo and behold, and I don't think this will surprise many of our listeners, I wasn't able to find any evidence that this thing is real or at the very least that there are very many motions at all to making this a reality, which is sad because even though it smelled like bullshit from back in March and there isn't that much reason to believe that Donald Trump is going to do anything if he and his people say he's going to do it in two to three weeks or two to three months. I still am disheartened that some version of it isn't actually coming around because, my God, would that be funny to see what it looks like. Doesn't Jason Miller do this, like, all the time? It's a very, like, wait till my dad gets here kind of thing. Like, you know, it's like someone gets kicked off of Twitter and then he's just like, well, like, Mr. Trump will soon be making his own social media network. And then it just, I mean, it just never appears. Well, again, he, it, Trump has at least another month or two months on the clock to uh, put up or shut up, but it is a very common stall tactic within Trump world, and this happened all the time during the administration, where they said Donald Trump will be putting out his plan or will be doing this action in two weeks. Trump would say that, or one of his apparatchiks would, and then just maybe less than one out of ten times, something would actually materialize. But this is something where, okay, like, what the hell is it going to look like? To see the Donald Trump WordPress page in an attempt to really stick it to Twitter is something I would love to see. I would love to see him promise to pay someone tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars to get this started, like Brad Parscale or whatever, and then just to actually see the fruits of their labor. So, you know, there had been this talk that they were going to buy or partner with some, like, really random social media network that, that was just, like, a very, like, blank page. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, go on, please. There was some report that it was a very, like, kind of bland social media network that no one had heard of, and there was there was a report that they were going to either buy it or partner with them and sort of rebrand it as Trump, as, as like, Trump land. I mean, do you have a sense... Uh, like, like, are they talking to, to any companies or what's the situation? If there? that is going on, um, I have not been able to find any hard evidence yet that that is anywhere near actionable or rises to any reasonable um, uh, level of uh, this is a thing that is actually happening. Yes, Donald Trump in the past however many weeks since he's been out of office has 
said to people close to him, this is something that I would be interested in doing. This is something we should do. I bet it would be big. But there was a long way to go between that and actually getting something up and running that could actually be anything to close to what's existing in his head. We've seen microcosms of this, like uh, Mike Lindell, the MyPillow CEO and the uh, big Trump ally, to his credit, actually tried to launch something. He made a huge deal about how this would attract millions of followers and how this would put Twitter to shame and how it would be a allegedly free speech haven. And then it just immediately face planted. Yeah. It, it, and actually, I'm looking it up right now and it, it says Frank has been a great success. And then, right. It, I mean, it's just like a blank page, basically. <laughs> so I'm going to put a put a flag in the ground here. I think this thing's never going to happen. And I know that's not that bold, but but here's why. Number one, I think it's like it's much more valuable to Trump and Republicans to have social media censorship as an issue to gripe about than to have a place where they can hang out. Right. And so, for example, let's say Trump, you know, a Trump talk comes out and it takes off. Well, then in the future, you know, when Twitter suspends somebody suspends Don Jr. for 12 hours, they can just say, well, why don't you just go on Trump talk, buddy? Uh, and then the the other. The other aspect is that once you start running a social media network, you're going to run into all of these crazy moderation decisions. And right now, Trump can offload those onto like Parler or Gab. Uh, but but once it's called Trump Talk or whatever, I mean, basically everything that happens there is being associated with Trump. So, for example, they're inevitably going to have to ban the Nazis who would go to that platform, right? <laughs> and so those guys are going to be mad. Uh, you know, they're going to. I mean, there's going to be all these like little individual moderation decisions that. That, that people are going to be like, you know, they're going to be acting like Donald Trump did it. Like, are they going to let it become a hive for QAnon? Uh, and then so to the extent that, that Trump becomes associated with that, I mean, it's just not worth the trouble. It really is basically like literally anything else in the conservative culture war right now, where the imperative is not for them to win the culture war. That would actually negate things they are working towards and run contra to their interests. The purpose of the culture war is for these things to remain, whether it's social media being mean to conservatives or whatever allegations like that. If that were to go away, it would not serve their interests. It is within their interests to whine about it from here to eternity. Right, exactly. And look, I mean, as Mike Lindell has shown, you know, it's not so easy to launch a social media network. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week, we welcome a new guest to Fever Dreams. But before I introduce him, I need to confess something. When I told a couple of loved ones who this week's guest would be and said it was a guy named David Roth, I'm not kidding. Two of my loved ones, independently and on separate days, perked up upon hearing this and said something to the effect of, oh, wow, how did you land that? Turns out they each had the impression that we had booked David Lee Roth, the legendary former singer of the hard rock band Van Halen on this show. Instead, we've actually had to resort to booking David J. Roth. A rock star in his own right. A rock star in his own right, though unfortunately not ever a member of Van Halen or even Van Hagar. But I digress. David J. Roth is one of our absolute favorite writers and online personalities, and he is also one of the co-founders of Defector Media. Roth has also written for such publications as The New Republic, New York Magazine, and Vice. At SB Nation, he was the author of this delectable 2014 piece titled I Made Up a Fake Donald Trump Quote, and Then He Retweeted It. In the years that followed and over the course of Trump's disastrous presidency, Roth has flown fairly under the media radar as perhaps the most incisive columnist, not just on what makes Donald Trump tick, but also on what truly animates the masses and the power brokers of the modern American right. And David has done so with biting wit and a pop cultural savvy while cutting through all the conventional bullshit. You can follow this David at David underscore J underscore Roth on Twitter.com. Mr. Roth, welcome to Fever Dreams. It's a very nice introduction, even leaving aside the part where it begins with crushing disappointment for people all the time. Do you at least sing? It. Do you play any instrument? Have you written I any don't, I don't, songs? dude. And I grew up at a time when like David Lee Roth was inescapable in the culture. Obviously not something my parents were up on at the time, but it was 
like a real kind of like a presence in like the first, you know, 10 years of my life. Not in a bad way. Like I remember at summer camp, I had like a tennis counselor convinced that David Lee Roth was my dad and would be coming for visiting day. (laughs) Which was, I mean, so that was like the first time that I really uh, inspired this kind of disappointment in anyone. It it is a total David Lee Roth move to have him David Roth Jr. So, I mean, it, yeah. it checks out. Yeah. It checks out. And I also, it's kind of a David Lee Roth move to just blow off visiting day and be like, sorry, man. <laughs> I was in Palm Springs. Moving on for a second. <laughs> I'd like to get back to this as soon as we can, if that's okay. The entire show is going to be about <laughs> oh, how good. you are or are not related to David Lee Roth. Understood. So one of the top reasons we want to have you on this show is because you have done a lot of work both at Deadspin in the past and now at Defector Media covering how sports and uh, Major League Ball and stuff like that intersects with our national politics and to be more specific, the most grating, terrible elements of the American national politic. So um, you've been doing some work recently on the vaccination push as it relates to Major League Baseball and how this has been in its own little way, this weird microcosm of where American society is today, both in the bullshit culture wars and everything else maddening around it. Can you tell our audience a little bit about what you've been working on on that? So I've been fascinated by it as, I mean, I think the way that think about sports and politics sort of like overlapping is just in the way that that everything sort of overlaps with politics, you know, that like there's no thing that is completely innocent of like other aspects of the culture. Like that's not, I don't think that's ever been true. It certainly isn't true now. With baseball's attempt to do the this big vaccination sort of push through the league, they've done more, you know, incentive setting, I think, than, you know, the government could because it's a, it's a private business. But they're also, it's a private business with a very sort of a radicalized billionaire class of owners uh, who are very high-handed. And then a union comprised largely of millionaires that is also equally hardcore about not wanting to to bend to those owners' whims. So that general element of wariness and hostility, I think really, really amps up the microcosmic elements of it, uh, that there's just like, it feels kind of right. But what they've done is they basically, if you, uh, if a team has 85% of its players vaccinated, a series of rules that are sort of restrictive of behavior um, that the league's imposed with the union uh, is dropped. So that if 85% of the guys in your clubhouse uh, get the jab, then you can go eat in restaurants and, you know, like all of this sort of stuff that uh, players were getting in trouble for doing last year because they never really stopped doing it. But that also led to a bunch of breakout, uh, like outbreaks last year. Um, so some teams were well across that 85% threshold early, you know, in like by spring training, the Cardinals are basically crossed it. And some teams like the Mariners are stuck around 50% and probably not going to get there at all. And the question of, of how and why this is to me like felt like in a way that's different, I think, than than it is in the broader culture where there's issues in terms of who can get it and how they can get it and how easy it is for them to get it. And, you know, just the general kind of aura of menace around healthcare for most Americans. It's easy for baseball players to do it. There's just like the choice between doing it or not doing it is like very much rendered as a choice, as kind of like an individual decision. This is the way that's the language that the union has chosen to use. Uh, They encourage it very strongly, but they do refer to it as an individual choice. And so there's a sense in which everybody in these clubhouses, uh, most of whom, like every other person, just wants to like go sit in a fucking restaurant with their friends like they used to before this happened. But like, so all these guys want to get back to normal. And yet to a certain extent, they are being held hostage by whatever percentage of the locker room it is. That's like, you know, finding bodybuilding memes about how like, if you drink (laughs) enough water, you don't need a vaccine. And they're just like, no, I'm going to do that. And so it's like there's an element of like the stupidity of it is so this is what makes sports such a great parallel for writing about politics or the culture is that like the dumb shit is just right at the surface. Like you don't need to like unpack it or be like, well, what is Tom Cotton really saying here? Like these guys are all just like they're sharing memes and they're like, I'm going to do what what this guy said, like what Ryback from WWE. Like I agree with him on this issue. So who specifically like by name or by team is a particularly a purveyor of what you're talking about? So they're not there's not that many people that are like like ardent, like anti, like sharing like Robert Kennedy Jr. posts or whatever. But what you basically have, so there's a couple of different stripes of it. Eric Sogard and his very active online wife, Casey, 
Rick Sogar is a second baseman for the Cubs, is like they are of that sort of aggrieved stripe of vax skeptic people where they're just sort of like, I don't you know, like, you'll never convince me this is just about a disease. Like this is about uh, power, I guess, and control and like, but like all these sort of like buzzwordy things where you're just kind of like, I mean, if you've ever talked to an anti-vax person, you're just sort of like, well, what do you mean by that? Like, there's not a whole lot under it. In their case, it's that their pastor thinks that you could do just as well with hydroxychloroquine and like whatever, just a, a thousand different flavors of kind of cultural runoff inform that. And then there's the other version of it that I've seen, which is more the like uh, alpha sports mindset poster guy approach, which is Noah Syndergaard had one of these in his Instagram story, uh, although he's mostly not been stupid about this. And uh, James Karinchak, who is the closer for the Cleveland Indians and has the same vibe as like a Connor O'Malley bit, if you've ever seen <laughs> Like, he pitches with that energy, like, in, like, a fun way. But he just got that kind of, like, Howard. Like, so he shared a post that was, like, it was literally, like, originated in, like, a bodybuilder's inspiration account or something that was kind of, like, you know, if you will, it had some, like, a Nazi comparison that didn't make sense. And, like, kind of, like, if at first they... It's how you know you're winning the argument. Right. But it was, like, it didn't even close the circuit. I was, like, is, so, like, COVID is the Nazis here, but also the vaccine is like that's Goebbels I guess I don't understand like they're working together it's extremely confusing that's how they get you that's (laughs) yeah it is Right. That's the they get you when you're weak. But there is that other element of like, you know, like lions don't concern themselves with the problems of lambs type like <laughs> poster <laughs> shit. You know, like it all leads to the same place, which is basically just being like, I'm sure that it's fine for you, but I'm different. So if one of them that got stabbed, would they like uh resist getting like like medical treatment for that? That like, would never where, happen. Where is that? The, would never happen. They would never get stabbed. <laughs> right. I mean, I think this is the, the thing that I really have always sort of wondered about with this. I think that like, and also I don't know to what extent like these guys are actually turning down the vaccines because this is such a like a thread in the way that that people sort of talk about this stuff. This kind of like an individualism that like spirals performatively, if not necessarily like I can't imagine people are just like walking around all day actually like this. Like you wouldn't be able to get through through, like a visit to Chipotle without starting a fight with somebody. <laughs> you know, like, they'd be like brown or white, and you'd be like, fuck, first of all, fuck you. Like there's just some element of it that's just really uh theatrical. And I think that like that a lot of this, especially because so much of what we know about it, I mean, and not just me as somebody who doesn't have a, a locker room credential, like no one's in the locker rooms talking to these guys now anyway, because that's like, it, there's still protocols in place. So all of this is you're seeing the, the sort of reflected online performance of it. And I think that's like sort of true, you know, in terms of taking the broader temperature of the culture. Like if you're going by Twitter, it seems like the entire country has been having like a, a massive breakdown for like four or five years. And I think that's mostly true. But I also think that when you are walking around the street, like it's the, or when you're walking around on the street, you see a different sort of side of things. You've mentioned something about this Patrick guy and john lester oh how the the nationals outbreak well this is the other way that to go into like the overly online element of it the other way that this sort of performs itself is that like so the nationals had a a big outbreak in the clubhouse before the start of the season and their whole uh season opener against the mets all that series just got bagged because too many guys were sick and the initial response online like this sort of i guess is like sort of the like the left version of this was discovering that patrick corbin uh, the Nats starter who has conservative politics had like put a picture up of himself playing golf with Trump at Mar-a-Lago, like one of those classic posters where it's like some famous person standing next to like what appears to be a butter sculpture of the 45th president on the green <laughs> and that like so he put that up and people found that and they were like oh look at Patrick Corbin like giving everybody COVID because he doesn't want the vaccine people started calling Patrick Corbin like with a Q like Q-O-R-B-I-N <laughs> online and like it wasn't him that did it like it wasn't he was not the originator of that but this is again the sort of thing where like I don't know what's in Patrick Corbin's heart it doesn't really matter to me very much but it again is the sort of thing where like if you're going through someone's Instagram timeline to try to like be the detective on how did so many nationals relievers get COVID-19 then like 
again, you also like everybody's been inside too long. Yeah. So speaking of Trump, I mean, David, you're you're also known as sort of one of the great. You're in like a being John Malkovich situation in Trump's head. <laughs> you're the guy I think can interpret it best. I mean, you know, as a connoisseur of sort of Trump mindset, I mean, what changes have you noticed uh, since he he left office and these sort of dispatches we're getting from Mar-a-Lago? I've been really curious. I've been looking for it. Uh, like, and this would be a great time for me to be like, well, well, he seems humbled. <laughs> <laughs> He does not. And what's funny about it, my friend Patrick Monaghan made this point that like, because they're not tweets, because they're, and they're not getting any sort of engagement. And because in many cases, like even when he's gone on TV, he's been kind of like, like, I like to distinguish between like, like wet Trump and dry Trump that like, there's like a version of him that's just like slicked with sweat, like, fuck, like James Brown in like when we were Kings and stuff (laughs) like that. And you're like, wow, he's really getting after it. Like that's the version you get at rallies. But then like dry Trump is when they roll him out behind a podium. And he's like, for years, the Coast Guard has protected our coasts and waterways <laughs> and like he's just completely checked out so he's had very dry trump vibes to me even when he goes on tv now like the the, the spirit is gone but patrick Monahan's point about it is with the uh, the dispatches, which are written like the tweets or dictated like the tweets. Like the they, emails they, all, they would blast out every to, like political reporter. Yeah. Right. But they have the feeling because of like they have to go through this process of mediation of being like, like imagine a voice from like inside of a closed box in a room that you're not in. So it's like, so there's something like comical about them to me in that way. Because you're just sort of like, okay, man, like that. Thanks very much. Let's get you home. Right. Like how it works nowadays is instead of him like huddling closely with Dan Scavino in the White House or him just blasting off the tweet with his own thumbs, he actually has to call up one of the handful of aides who still works for him and like dictate or workshop what he wants to say. I'm mad about Doug Ducey. Can you write this down? (laughs) Like, which is great. The unique indignity of that being part of your job nowadays is even more perverse than when he did a version of that, when he had the nuclear launch codes. Because right. in that context, you're doing it for the literal leader of the free world. Yeah. So you could be like, right, I, I had to like write that when the president got upset about something he saw on TV, I was the guy. I was the man in the arena, like I know, roughly the, translating the, what he was mad about. There was a vague honor like a quiet, depressing honor to that. Not for me or you, but for somebody yeah. who is willing to take right. that job. But when he's just the guy who plays golf at Mar-a-Lago, who is mad at Kevin McCarthy for not being anti-democratic enough, yeah. the magic but, is gone. Are you then? Like your job basically is like signing your dad into Facebook. That's right. your job. <laughs> but uh, speaking of Trump and his um, extremely online posting, you actually have a little bit of familiarity with Donald Trump in the wild and also in terms of him quote tweeting or retweeting you once back in 2014. I briefly referenced this a little bit ago with the piece you wrote at SB Nation all those years ago. But can you dive into that a little bit, starting with the one time you met or if not met, were in the same room as Donald J. Trump? So I was in the same room uh, with Donald J. Trump when I was a a young man. So my mom's Aunt Dorothy, who was also my Aunt Dorothy, married a man named Charles Hayden, who was a lawyer, uh, like a criminal defense attorney in New York City, and not a, a not a family favorite. After Dorothy <laughs> passed, Charles Hayden married uh, a woman, a model, um, and she had two daughters who were in, in their teens at the time. One of them, Vanessa, would go on to marry Donald Trump Jr. And then uh, later they would split up because he had important work to do on the road, protecting America and uh, securing a future for our children. Or, But I don't remember all of the words. Uh, the <laughs> So when Charles passed, I went to his funeral with my dad. And at Charles' funeral, Trump was, you know, the whole family was there. And Trump arrived uh, late and left early, but was also there sitting in like a chair kind of above the gallery of of uh, people listening to speeches about uh, Charles Hayden. It was not, um, you know, like a remarkable uh, celebrity sighting for me. Like it wasn't somebody I'd always admired and being like, wow, that's him. That's really the guy, you know, like that was more like I saw Ted Danson on the street one time. And that was like way more of a way more of a pop for me. But the the thing that was kind of like that I remember at the time being like struck by, like I I grew up around here. I grew up in New Jersey um, and he was, you know, nationally famous, but was also just like kind of a local oaf. Like he was always in the tabloids and would, you know, kind of not just for getting divorced, although it was usually for getting divorced, but it would be for like he would like make up stories about himself, like, you know, stepping out of a limo to stop a mugger on his way. This was like a real thing that he said it happened. Uh, he was on his way to a Paula Abdul concert at Giant Stadium. <laughs> 
little detail that I'll have in my brain until the moment I die, which is right, like really ste- great for me. Uh, like it was someone assailing an old lady or something like that with a baseball bat, and he stepped yeah, out of the limo to say, "Buddy, you don't want to do this." And then the guy yeah, runs off. That's exactly what it was. So it was like basically he imagined himself in the role of like the role that like Bubba Smith played in the Police Academy movies. That was just Trump, like stepping out of a car and being tall and being like, "Hey, knock it off, asshole!" And the guy was like, "All right." <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. I mean, like the idea that's like a nice little window, as with so much of like the dumbest things about him are like the most illuminating. We're like, that's what he thinks it would be. Is that like how it would work? (laughs) And so like being around him, I was like, there was something kind of like shabby and like yet also like a sort of gravitas about him where I was like, I've known who this guy is for like my whole life, not for any good reason, but just like that was the the real feeling that I had about him. And that was what fascinated me about him on Twitter back in the days when it seemed less menacing was that like his presence on there was so small time and dumb. Like it was just like tweets about his golf courses and then just like opaque beefs with like 80s showbiz people where he'd be like, nasty Bette Midler's hair is looking very cheap. You know, and it was, but it was so bipolar in like how he, you know, sort of was just like constantly oscillating between like grandiose, like patting himself on the back. Like ever since I invented grass, I've sought to perfect the putting green. And today, like that day is here. And then like, yeah, and then like getting mad at Bronson Pinchot for snubbing him. <laughs> Right. So after years of injecting this probably against your better judgment and will sludge into your eyeballs and into your soul for however many years, I believe it was June 2014 rolls around summer 2014. And you decide to do exactly. And you decide to do a series of just random tweets embodying the voice, if not the factual elements of Donald Trump and his life. And before you get into why this is relevant, he as far as I know, he did not follow you. He had no reason to know who you were. Absolutely no reason to know who I was. Did not follow me. I mean, even, I don't know who he follows, actually. Like, But at that point, I was, you know, 24th, I was decently early. It's my first real job uh, at SB Nation. Like, I'd written other places and done other things, but I did not have, like, a big following by any stretch. I'd been fascinated by Trump's online voice and had, like, tweeted, like, sort of just in um, in his voice at times, like, being, like, you know, a Donald Trump Kia of, of Islip, Long Island, like, Nobody gets service better than you. Believe me. Like, it's sad that haters don't believe that. Like, that, you're just like dumb posts like that that would get like 20 likes, you know? And in this case, it was, uh, I just made up some ultra fatuous quotes from a fake book of his, like, I, like a book called Winning. And it was like, success to me was never bad. I always thought it was good. I love it. And I still do. Like, just like completely circular, <laughs> ghost written, you know, successory stuff. And like 15 minutes after I posted it, at like midnight, uh, he, did the thing that he used to do when he would just quote tweet people. Like he would just slap quotes around the text and then just like run it as his own post. And in this case, he like attributed that quote to himself. Like so it was doubly (laughs) misattributed because there's no such book exists. He's never said plenty of things that are that stupid and hard to parse, but never exactly that thing. And then people started pointing it out and then he blocked me. And that was it. And he was never heard from again. He's got to block you so he he stops following for these these fake tweets in his brain. He's like, how these guys are getting... so sophisticated. You fooled me. Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea how. Like, I really probably could have like ransomed him somehow if he'd stayed following me for one more day or not blocking me. So it was the future president searching himself or just his name on Twitter.com after midnight, and he happened across. Oh, David Roth thinks very highly of this book I've written. Yeah, verified journalist, like, so presumably a big fan of mine. I don't know where, like, how, what his process was. I I never really did get the chance to talk to him about it. Uh, But yeah, it was a really, but also like the people that even then, this was something I learned at, at SB Nation on a different post as well, that like the people that are, that followed him on there and were constantly like replying to every post he did. At that time, there was no like reply guy culture, people being like, resign, sir, because he like didn't have a job. You know, he wasn't doing anything but posting. But there were people that would like in the same way that like everything that Elon Musk posts, there's like a million people under it being like, oh, great one, sir. Can you give me a Bitcoin? You know, like there's like just a lot of like really like kind of 
of thirst repliers in that. Like for Trump, it was like, so he did that and people were like, too true, sir. Uh, I'm trying to start a business and I was hoping I could get your, and you know, obviously no support was forthcoming, but it was like, there were people that really took him seriously. It was clear. And then I remember doing a post at SB Nation that was about periodically in the before uh, politics era, he would make noise about buying a sports team. He owned and wrecked a team in the, he wrecked the entire United States football league when I was a kid. But he, you know, he talked about, I'm going to buy the New Jersey Nets. Like I'm in, in this case, it was that he wanted to buy the Buffalo Bills, which he was never going to be allowed to. For one thing, he was not rich enough. And for another thing, like NFL owners at that time, I mean, a lot of them gave him a lot of money once he started running for president. But in like 2014, they were just like, oh, the, the TV guy, no thanks. Like we'll, we'll take uh, somebody who can pay us twice as much for entrance into our little club and who will be less embarrassing. And I did a post you know, like a sort of a tossed off post. It's like Donald Trump is not buying the Buffalo Bills. Come on. And, you know, I had some like little adolescent taunts in it and stuff. And SB Nation's structure at the time was like, I wrote it for the main page and then they sort of, uh, they put it up on the, the Bills. I think it's Buffalo Rumblings, the Bills specific team site. And the comments it got there were very different than the ones they got on the main page. Like people were like, not just negative. They were like, this is extremely disrespectful to Mr. Trump. And there was like a lot, it's just funny if you know like Bills fans too, because it's like the thing that Bills fans are famous for is drinking like cherry schnapps and then just like suplexing each other in the parking lot for no reason outside of games. <laughs> And they, but in this one case, they're like, all right, first of all, like, can we be men about this? Like, <laughs> you need to grow up, sir. Like, just like really respecting him in a way that like, it didn't occur to me that anybody could respect Donald Trump. When all of this stuff was happening at some t- points under the cultural radar during the mid-Obama era, I look back on it and I think to myself, how did we ever not think this guy could become president? Yep, Absolutely. Like Absolutely. everything you need for a fervent, cultish, extremely dedicated fan base that elects leaders in this country and other countries was always there in a way that you're not going to get if other celebrities who are actually A-list, unlike what he was at the time, like uh, Bruce Willis is never going to be elected president of the United States. He's his, too busy. His fans don't. Well, he, a, he's too busy, and B, his fans do not want it enough. Yeah, I think is the thing that when I, you know, having time to think back on it now, I mean, like, I don't imagine that any of this is over. Like, I don't think anything uh, really ends like that. But I think at the time, this is the part that I feel the most naive about, where I was like, it's clear that, you know, he had been like, a symbol of like, he was like the rich guy whom fucks in American media (laughs) and popular culture for a generation. Like that was what he was famous for. was like the guy who was constantly building big buildings and getting divorced and, you know, like going on vacation and stuff. And it was, it was always kind of like blousy and fake, but at the same time, like to me, it seemed that way. I think that for a lot of people, it was like, yeah, he's the, he's the most successful businessman or whatever the, the, you know, the read on was for him in the apprentice that he's like the most successful businessman in the world. And then like, and you know, like, and also everybody knows his name and knows what he looks like. So of course, if he runs, like there's all of that stuff sort of built in, like what the, you know, whatever the studios call like pre-awareness for movies and stuff like that, that he was basically just like, it was an attempt to like an edgy reboot of the 1980s. You know, like that's a, that's a big idea. And the fact that he himself was so like manifestly, like just a hustler with no ideas or no, you know, policies or politics or whatever. Of course that didn't fucking matter. Like, of course it didn't. Like what he had was... He had some instincts and he was shameless and he was aware of like what popped and what didn't. And that was that. So that's what it was. I mean, it was just basically like anything that I sort of the idea that like somebody to be president needed to have uh, attributes or political beliefs or whatever. All of that feels um, like painfully naive at this point. Uh, Something you wrote for The Land magazine, which published shortly before Joe Biden was elected as the 46th president of the United States, was uh, what I thought was a very compelling and powerful piece headlined, endorsing the lesser of two evils in this stupid, sad, and fake election. And the reason why it hit me so hard was because I think while you were writing this, you were suspecting that Donald Trump would be a one-term president, like that in terms of that aspect of the modern Democratic Party project was going to be a success. But not only in terms of what Trump has revealed this country to be and what he has further underscored that the Republican Party has perhaps been for many, many decades, there was this feeling of ennui about it and the failure of liberal politics in America that I thought was both thoroughly depressing, but 
thoroughly spot on in terms of where we are currently as a country. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate that. It, it was, you were not wrong in picking up the, the ennui from that one. That was, I mean, like everybody, I think it was just, this was a, a brutal year, even if you work from home all the time. You know, I mean, there's just like the world seemed like you're you not wrong in picking up the sort of exhausted person vibes from it. There was also the sense to me that like the Trump himself, like I, I, the idea of him as a projection of fo- a foreign power or of like a manifestation of like a secret, uh, you know, surge of American fascism or whatever. Like, I, I don't. I never subscribe to any of that, at least not all the way. I think you can understand him getting elected, having this, the, the sort of the cult around him that he has as like a failure, like a reflection of the failure of like liberal politics as we've seen it, like most recently with Obama, where it's, it's just not connected, that there's a disjunction between the like professed beliefs and the lived reality that people have and the sort of idea of this like grandiose um, project that you know, the nation is embarked upon is like everywhere you go belied by like how shabby and shitty and falling down and broken the things around us are. Now you can do with that reality a number of things that like you can say, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make it so that like, you know, whatever the uh, services that you need are less likely to harm you or that like the state is going to be less violent and less arbitrary. Or you can be like, look at all this fucking carnage. Like, can you believe this? Look at what they did to our country. Don't you want to, don't you want to punish them? Don't you want to join me in punishing them? And that sort of shit to me is like, it's not going to go away unless you address the actual problems. And that like, I think that as Republicans don't govern, can't govern, like that that's just sort of like, I think now it's like an ideological thing that like any government that goes beyond like the infliction of violence really is is considered to be like anathema to them. If Democrats are not going to, if they're going to insist on getting half a loaf from people that uh, now believe that bread is socialist, then you're not going to be able to get anywhere. And I think also in this case, like, you can't, you can't like say we're fixing it or we're sad about all of the bad things that keep happening. Like there has to be action or the other, you know, sort of theatrical anti-politics that we have is going to, you know, come back. Not maybe in the form of Trump, but in the form of like this incoherent and violent and sort of like secretly despairing grandiosity that is like sort of the center of his movement. Like either you you fix the political conditions for that or you deal with it forever. So David, you know, you're a guy who has this sort of often chilling insight into the American psyche. Very nice. It strikes me that we're entering this kind of unfortunate era of uh, like Elon Musk being increasingly prominent in our culture. Uh, What is up with these Elon Musk fans online? Why do they love him so much? You know, what's their deal? I mean, that's a that's a hard one. I have tried very hard to avoid crossing paths with uh, the the Elon Musk stan community. The Ehive, not the <laughs> right? I mean, obviously, I love his posts about Harambe. I'm with him on that. <laughs> the shit is epic. I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's not epic. But I, I think that it does have like a similar sort of feeling in some ways to, I guess, to like to Trump stuff. But really, it's like it's stan culture. Like it's like a sort of an obsessive like internet grounded fandom. What's weird about it is that like, I mean, that's not how I uh, choose to live my life, but I could, if I were trying to be generous, like the idea of like people that are out there every day, just thinking about how fucking great Beyonce is and looking for people that are saying things about Beyonce that they don't agree with. So they could be like, Hey man, I got to be honest with you. You have to fuck off. Beyonce's great. That I sort of understand it. Cause like at least Beyonce, you know, does some stuff <laughs> uh, in this case with Elon. It, this is like, I think the, purest and weirdest sort of manifestation that I've seen of it that like it doesn't I don't think have anything to do even with like what Tesla does or like what he does I think the idea is that like this is the person that in the same sort of way I think that Trump was that is sort of like the consensus like number one smart rich billionaire guy like and it's a little bit different than Trump because Trump's whole thing was that he was like yeah I'm an asshole but I get results like look at how many times I've managed to get divorced. Like Elon also really good at getting divorced, but that's not part of his narrative. Like his (laughs) thing is that he's like, whatever, just the smartest and the best. And so I think that even if you like, I mean, I don't see how you could like read his posts, for instance, like just the, the work he does on Twitter and be like, this is good shit and I need more of it. But I think that like, if you are going into it with the idea of being like, well, let's see what the smartest man in the world is posting. And then you see it and you're like, oh, I, I guess I see that Babylon B headline is pretty funny now. Like, 
<laughs> like, but I think that's what it takes is like, you have to be motivated in that way. And th that to me, like, I mean, obviously that doesn't exist in a healthy culture for anyone, probably even for Beyonce that like people are like, I love her music and I like looking at uh, pictures of her, but like, I'm not going to spend my whole day yelling at people about her. Like that would be a culture that would be healthier than ours. It's not ours. But the Elon stuff is like, it's bizarre to me too. I mean, I, I don't think in the same way it was with Trump. I mean, I don't, don't think there's any disproving it. Like, I don't think there's any number of rockets that could blow up or that like, or that his Saturday Night Live performance could be so bad that people would be like, oh, I think I was wrong about that. Like, actually, this guy is not that funny. Well, on that thunderously disheartening note. Uh <laughs> Let's do something else. Uh, American League Central rundown. You know, is up for it? <laughs> uh, oh, we definitely want you back on the show and uh, remind us of that topic when we have you back. Yeah, we'll talk about, we'll just table the your mean Mercedes conversation until a later date. Exactly. David, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. And now we're moving on to a segment that our listeners have come to know and hopefully cherish called Fresh Hell, in which we introduce the audience to something that they will be astonished by that is actually happening in the world in which they inhabit. Will, something that has been in the public consciousness since Donald Trump introduced it into the mainstream during the pandemic, bleach and its many purveyors. So you have been uh, looking into this family who the feds have indicted, if I recall correctly, who have been selling thousands of bottles of magical mineral solution. What is going on here? <laughs> yeah, right. So, so you know, you may recall, I, I think it was almost exactly a year ago that Donald Trump recommended uh, people inject bleach to uh, get rid of the coronavirus. Uh, but, but bleach has sort of a long and uh, storied history in sort of various extremist and fringe movements as a cure-all. And, and so typically that has come in the form of this thing called magical mineral solution. Solution, uh, which is chlorine dioxide, which, you know, sounds all right, uh, except it, it, I mean, it's basically the FDA says it's drinking bleach, right? And so this has been embraced by like new age communities, by parents who are trying to cure their kids, of, you know, quote unquote, cure their kids of autism. Uh, Brandy Zdrozny at uh, NBC has done great reporting on this. And basically, it, you know, it's been embraced by QAnon people. And so, I mean, essentially it's it's drinking bleach. And so this guy, the, there's this whole family, These they're called the Grenons, and they, they they push this bleach uh, or bleach-like substance on people. Um, and so more recently, they incorporated a church essentially to, you know, and they've been very open about this, that it's sort of like the church of bleach and that they can, basically the idea is it's like, you can't stop me from selling bleach. Selling bleach is my religion. So these guys have had like kind of a, they've been outlaws. And uh, I, I think there was like a trip to South America. There was like a lot of stuff going on. And so then just last week, the, the feds indicted Bishop Grennan and his his, his kids for their roles. And, uh, and so finally, you know, th this is maybe the, the highest profile indictment we've seen of some, uh, some bleach peddlers. Right. And this stuff works. And by works, I mean, it's a con that people, yes, yeah, yes, I mean, it's a con. <laughs> right. No, don't, don't consume bleach to try to cure the coronavirus. I'm not <laughs> advocating that to anybody listening right now. But what I meant was this is a con that people keep perpetrating and keeps working, at least in the short term for them, because people really do drink bleach. It, it's yeah, I mean, the thing to understand is like, this is not like a dude who sold five bottles of bleach. I mean, these are thousands and thousands of bottles of bleach. I mean, I think there's talk about like, I mean, these guys were making a lot of money. And in terms of whether it works, I mean, obviously it doesn't work, but the there's kind of this crazy thing Says where you. people, yeah, well, people post on the forums, they'll be like, look, as soon as I started drinking the bleach, you know, all of this, basically my bowel movements had <laughs> like oh, all of no. this new stuff in it. And so I'm like purging the parasites. And it's like, no, you're like cooking your insides. That's like your, your body is just like, like, being flushed out. And so, yeah, I mean, it's grim stuff. But like I said, I mean, a lot of QAnon people swear by it. And so I think this is sort of this glimpse into the weird, the deleterious uh, sort of health effects of these conspiracy theories that we cover here on Fever Dreams. Um, and of course, obviously, the most visible one we're, we're dealing with right now is uh, people not taking the vaccine. When people do this, how often do they cite Donald Trump as someone who backs them on this? I feel like Trump's whole bleach thing, like, for whatever reason, these guys, and, and often sort of to our chagrin, in as a society, they don't really trust Trump on health matters. So like when he says, get the vaccine, they're like, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And so, <laughs> you know, I mean, they trust him on everything else except for the things we might want them to try. Or when he says, I was just kidding about the bleach or whatever. I mean, these people were into bleach, like, you know, way before Trump got into it. And, you know, that, that reminds me that the other Trump thing, right, was UV lights, which, of course, um, you know, now 
very big in Arizona. So, so it's all coming full circle here. Okay, so these guys aren't just selling bleach, though. It's getting a little bit more serious and maybe a little bit more would-be militant about it. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So they've kind of been in this years-long saga with the, the federal government, and they were, it was getting to the point where, you know, according to these these new indictments, they were saying, you know, we're going to get some guns, and if someone tries to stop us from selling bleach, you know, we're going to do a Waco. Their words were, you know, quote, a Waco. And so obviously, you know, this is kind of some ominous stuff. So, so it, it goes beyond just, uh, you know, some wacky bleach stuff. So, I mean, like, you know, this is one of these things I think we're going to see, you know, a lot more tensions between right-wing groups and the federal government now that the Democrats in charge. I mean, I think there's all this talk about, you know, increasingly in the wake of the riot going after right wing extremists. And so I think this is kind of something we're going to see more and more of this kind of these tensions rising. Always love to end on a reassuring note. Well, you know, speaking of uh, health issues, and I'd like to close with a shout out to the Moderna vaccine. As we talked about on last week's Fresh Hell, I spent a weekend a few recently with 4,500 people at the Tulsa, quote, Health and Freedom Conference, where it was a bunch of Q folks who hate the vaccine and hate wearing masks. Uh, you know, we were all indoors. There was a lot of shouting, a lot of, you know, I think some singing, perhaps. And I came away with no infection. No corona for me. So, uh, you know, big shout out to the vaccine. I'm a Johnson and Johnson man myself, so I don't think I'm allowed to host a podcast with you anymore, Will. <laughs> You're apparently beneath my station. So, so thank you for tuning in to the final episode of Fever Dreams. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.